you know, when you become a Christian, uh, you certainly should, and I think this is often the case, we fall in love with the, the Word of God, don't we? And as we think about the Word of God, as we read through the Word of God, sometimes we're just, uh, just discouraged and disappointed. Why don't people get this? Why don't people embrace this? Why is there so much opposition to the truth when the truth seems so very much apparent to us? And that was certainly the case in the Old Testament ministry, the case of Jesus' ministry, and in the ministry of the apostles. And as introduction to our verse today in 2 Corinthians 3, 12 through 18, I want to look, first of all, though, as a passage in Luke 4, 17 through 30, where Jesus has gone back to his hometown. And he's in the synagogue of his hometown where he grew up, where everybody knew him. Uh, and he's opportunity to read the word of God. So I'm going to pick up here with Luke chapter 4, 17 through 30. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, that is Jesus. And he opened the book and found the place where it was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all were speaking well of him, and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. And they were saying, Is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, No doubt you will quote the proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we heard was done in Capernaum, do here in our hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his own hometown. But I say to you in truth, there, are many, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the sky was shut up for three years and six months, when a great famine came over all the land. Yet Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath, to the land of Sidon, to the woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel at the time of Elisha, the prophet, and none of them was cleansed but only Haman, Naaman the Syrian. And all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things. And they got up and drove out to the city and led him, uh, led him to the brow of the hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went his way. One of the things we see here is, is the transition Within, it seems like, at least with the text that we have here, within a matter of minutes, people were praising Jesus about what he was saying, about the truth of the scriptures. They were affirming what he read, but then he started meddling. <laughs> then he started talking to them, and he started to reprove them for the rejection of truth. And of course, as the text says, they said, that's wonderful. We really want to be rejected and we want to be uh, convicted about our sin. Please keep it up. That's no, not what they said. They wanted to kill him, right? You know, that's just the story of mankind, isn't it? And we're going to look at that today in Paul's passage as he compares the ministry of Moses with a stiff-necked people with the ministry that came through the Holy Spirit. And the liberty that came through that Holy Spirit. And as we do so, we're going to look at the deficiencies of the Old Covenant in verses 12 through 15 of 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And the effects of the New Covenant, verses 16 
through 18. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we turn to you in faith. We thank you so much for the blessings of being people who live under the new covenant. We marvel at those Old Testament saints who were just... uh, who had to look to the future, they had to look and, and, and put their faith in a Messiah yet unborn and a, and a covenant uh, this was spoken of but not yet revealed. And they did not have the advantages that we have in terms of having the Bible and the church institutions and the Holy Spirit and all those things. Let us marvel at their faith. And Lord, let us just turn to you in gratitude. And I pray, God, as we look at your holy word this morning, as we just uh, go to school on the Apostle Paul, as he makes a comparison between his ministry and the ministry of Moses, uh, with grateful hearts, we would just be able to praise the Lord God for living a life of faith under the new covenant. Bless us now, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Again, we're going to look at uh, just really two sections here uh, on 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 12 through 18, and we're going to begin with the deficiencies of the Old Covenant, verses 12 through 15. You might find your insert, your home group helps insert of benefit to you there uh, to kind of follow along with us uh, as we go through here. I'm going to read to verses 12 through 15 as we look at the deficiencies of the Old Covenant. God says, the Apostle Paul writes, Therefore, having such a hope, we use great boldness in our speech. And are not like Moses who used to put a veil over his face so that the sons of Israel would not look intently at the end of what was fading away. But their minds were hardened, for until this very day at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because it is removed in Christ. But to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. So we begin here with a therefore. What's the therefore? Therefore is a transitional statement from our previous passage that we looked at a couple of weeks ago. Uh, Paul's argument of the superiority of the new covenant and and, and, and in particular his ministry. Remember, Paul is having to defend his ministry against uh, probably people with a Judaizing uh, uh, bent who were basically saying, yeah, Jesus is great, but to really experience being a Christian, you've got to become a Jew first. So they started bringing in all these ceremonies and pressing people on kosher eating and things like that. Uh, and we're really ba- basically trying to, in a sense, steal the liberty uh, of, the, of, the, of the early Christians back then. So he makes this transitional statement here comparing the superiority of his ministry over that of the ministry of Moses because his ministry is a ministry of the new covenant. Moses was under the, the old covenant. Uh, and he focuses on b- both of these deficiencies of the Old Covenant and the effects of the New Covenant as we go through this text here. Uh, but, but one of the things about the Old Custom- Covenant, I mean, it, again, it, there's nothing wrong with the covenant. There is nothing wrong with Moses. The problem is you, <laughs> or at least the church at that time. The problem is the people. Uh, they were just so stiff-necked that they just consistently rebelled against against. Uh, against God, right? I mean, as uh, we're going through Sunday school, we've been going through, we start in Genesis, we're now in, uh, in 1 Samuel, we've been, we just see the story after story after story, the, the, the inability or the seeming on a desire for the people to really obey in that, and this is what Paul is trying to, 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 to point out. Why would you go back to that? How about we do this? How about you read the book of Judges and see if that's really what you want to go back to? 
So basically, in contrast, uh, you know, we have the Old Testament. They were really provided, did not have uh, provision of, of hope and forgiveness because you have this constant sacrifices that had to be repeated over and over and over again. But hope comes. He says this, having such a hope, having such a hope, we use great boldness of speech. Folks, that's something we have. Do not let your depression, do not let your anxiety rob you of that hope. That is what the devil wants you to do. Our hope is not in success. Our hope is not in being handsome in appearance. Our hope is not in relationships. Our hope is in the Lord. And we're so used to that, we take it for granted. And Paul is reminding us of the hope that comes from the new covenant. The new covenant is the final covenant. There's not going to be a new, newer covenant. This is it. This is the end of God's plan until he comes back. So let's enjoy it. <laughs> Let's enjoy the hope that God has given us here. This is the final solution. The new covenant comes from God. It must be true. It comes from God, so it must be good. It comes from God, so it must be holy. You know, uh, I, I think about, we, we can tend to sometimes judge the Old Testament saints for their disobedience, but I want you to place yourself in their, in their sandals, if you will, for a little while. Let's assume that uh, right before the coming of Christ, during that intertestamental uh, period, the temple has been uh, rebuilt from the the folks who came back uh, from the captivity. And you're a devout Jew. And you travel to Jerusalem three times a year for pilgrimage. And you take a sacrifice. And you've been coming since you were a little child. As a little child, you weren't allowed to go into the court of the men. You had to kind of stay out with the the court of the, the women. You went through the court of the Gentiles, you go to the court of the women. Then as you go, you have your bar mitzvah, you become a son of the law. Then you're allowed to go into the court of the men. So you pass the court of the Gentiles, you pass the court of the women. You go into the court of the men. And then you behold there the temple, right in front of you. And in the entrance of that temple, you see perhaps the veil of the temple. With its embroidered angels guarding the way to keep you from having access to God. So you come all the way to Jerusalem and you can only go so far because there's this giant curtain there. And if that doesn't stop you enough, armed guards have permission to kill you if you go past a certain line. There is this constant sense that I've come to God, but I can't get to him because of my own sin. There is a separation between me and God. And we got the sacrifices. We know God's given us that. And yet there's still something missing. We don't have access. Well, what happened after Jesus cried out, it is finished? A great earthquake came by the hand of God and tore that temple veil from two, in two from top to bottom. Some of the greatest imagery in all of Holy Scripture. The days where you have no access to God are gone. And what does that do? It gives us hope. Hebrews chapter 6. In the same way God desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose. Interposed with an oath. So that those two un, uh, unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. We who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope that's set before us. This hope we have is an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, one which enters within the veil where Jesus has entered as the forerunner for us. There's no more separation. Not only do you not have to just look and see and imagine what God must be like behind that veil, that veil is torn in two and God comes and lives within us. 
What a blessing it is to be under the new covenant. Why would we want to go add a bunch of ceremonies and legalism and go and ruin it all? Paul is dumbfounded. Really, you're putting shackles back on. Why would you want that? And because of this hope that we have, and, and, and a lot of y'all are lacking hope. I, there's a lot of folks going through a lot of difficulty right now. And part of that is because we keep focusing on this world and the difficulty. I'm just telling you, lift up your eyes, folks, and see the hope that's there. Jesus has gone into that veil. We have an anchor connecting to God so that the Christian can say, God, whatever your plan is, that's what I want my plan to be. And we can rest in that hope. And because of that, we can have what? Boldness in our speech. That idea of boldness is courageous, confident, outspoken. You know, sometimes, you, you know, when you're in a conversation with somebody and you sort of heard something kind of on the news and you kind of say, you know, I think this is right, but it was sort of like this. You don't have to say any of that with Christianity. You can say, thus saith the Lord. Jesus is the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father but through him. You can have boldness of speech, boldness of speech because of the hope that we have. What a blessing that is. Humility is obviously the, the, one of the signs of a Christian, but that humility includes a holy confidence in God, not in ourselves. And he goes on to make this comparison here. Uh, um, we are not like Moses who used to put a veil over his face. And Paul, again, is contrasting the ministry of Moses and, and himself here. And you remember this comes from Exodus chapter 34. The, the Israelites, after making the first Ten Commandments, they decided to make God in the image of a giant cow. Uh, that was upsetting. And then God came and smote some of them. And, uh, got, and Moses got angry, broke the commandments that God had written so he goes back up on the mountain God gives him another set of commandments to come back down and one of the things we see from that passage is because Moses was in such close proximity to God himself the Shekinah glory rubbed off on him his face glowed and the people of God were terrified of God and when he came down they were scared to be around him and to look at him because of his glowing face so Moses had to put a veil over his face. And Exodus 34 tells us when he'd go see God, he would take the veil off and speak God face to face. But then because of this glow that terrified other people, he would have to veil his face. He's veiling that ministry. And part of the reason why is because of the end of what was fading away. Again, that ministry was God's ministry too. That was a good ministry, but the people were incapable of doing it. It didn't give them the power to obey. It was, it was in a sense, obsolete as soon as it started, because the new covenant was coming. And its intention was to be the tutor that shows us our sinfulness so that we will embrace God's grace. So all of that Old Testament, is, is, it's symbolized in shadowness and, and it's veiled and, and the diminishing nature of the glory of God is all kind of, it's in there in the types and the pictures and the symbols and the shadows of, and the mysteries of what is to come. If you want to kind of understand what it must have been like, to live as a believer in the time before the New Testament, think about when's the last time you read the book of Revelation? You know, it starts pretty easily. You know, John's a prisoner. Jesus shows up. It's pretty awesome. And he writes the seven letters, okay? But after the seven letters, it gets kind of wild, doesn't it? So tell me about this beast that comes out of the ocean with the ten heads, Okay. We don't speak so boldly about that, do we? Because we don't know what that is. That's kind of what it must have been like to be 
under the Old Testament. We know it's God. We know there's symbolism and everything, but we're not quite really sure. And I'll be honest with you, I'm going to, uh, in four years, maybe three years, I'm going to preach through the book of Revelation. If he hadn't come back by that time, kind of hoping he will. But uh, uh, if we're, no one's really going to understand that until he does come back completely. There's just mystery there. Can we be honest enough to say there's mystery? That's the way it was for the whole Old Testament. What in the world are they talking about? And yet, Ezekiel and Jeremiah both spoke of the coming of the Lord in the New Covenant and the filling of the Holy Spirit and giving the people of God a love of God and an ability to obey those laws that were only written in stone before. They're going to be written on hearts. So again, why is, why is it this old covenant was fading? It was so obsolete. He gives us the answer here. It's not Moses' fault. It's not the old covenant's fault. It's because their minds were hardened. Their minds were hardened. That's another way of saying they were just stubborn. This wasn't so much an ignorance thing. It was just a willfulness thing. When Jesus read from the Old Testament and he quoted what happened in the Old Testament stories with Elijah and Elijah, there was, no, there was no excuse for ignorance right there. They knew those stories. What they didn't like is that he applied it to them. Here I am, Messiah, coming to my own hometown, and you will reject me. Why are you saying those mean things about for us? Let's go kill him. You know, you're sort of proving the point, by the way. Right? Stubbornness, stubbornness. This was the characteristic of the people. Stephen, remember Stephen, the first martyr? We are looking for new officers for the church right now. Perhaps mentioning that Stephen, the deacon, was the first martyr is probably bad timing. Uh, but really, what believer doesn't really want to go out as a martyr? Stephen, in his, as he's finishing up his amazing summary, this is a lot of times the, the, the first summary of the Old Testament that a lot of new believers get as they go through the book of Acts. He's, he's gone through and he's talked about the stubbornness of the people of God and he closes out his amazing sermon there surrounded by people with rocks in their hands, right? And the Apostle Paul, <laughs> I'm sorry, Saul of Tarsus, <laughs> becomes the Apostle Paul, <laughs> you know, later on. Acts chapter 7, Stephen's closing up. You men... Look at the boldness here. The boldness of Stephen, surrounded by these people who wanted to kill him. You men, you can see that finger going out. You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. And you who received the law as ordained by angels, yet did not keep it. Again, they said, well, you know, he's right. We have really blown it here. Let's become Christians. Okay, that's not how it happened. They kill him with rocks, proving his point. And Paul talks about the same thing. He saw this all the time. Paul was covered with scars. I don't know what that guy looked like. He probably didn't go to the beach much, well, unless he washed up on shore from one of his three shipwrecks. <laughs> For until this very day, at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted. Sabbath reading after Sabbath reading. All of the amazing advantages given to those people from God 
and it just made their heart harder, harder. Again, Jesus speaks of this in John 5. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you will have eternal life. And these testify about me. And you were unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is who? Moses. In whom you've set your hope. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how you will, believe, will you believe my words? Well, that's because they're veiled. They're, they, they are, their stubbornness has created a veil. They don't see God's will. They don't understand God's word. They don't understand his redemptive plan. They grab onto the, the low-hanging fruit, the law stuff, and they neglect the faith and the hope and the love stuff. And to this very heart, their hearts are hard. Paul laments this. He, he, he wishes he could die and go to hell instead of the people of God going to dying and going to hell. And, of course, Paul is overwhelmed with gratitude. He was a terrorist. He was the stormtrooper of these folks for a while until God changed him on the road to Damascus. But in Romans 9, he says, I'm telling the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience testifies to me. He's making something of a vow here as he's writing to the Romans, in the Holy Spirit, that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I wish that I could be accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. And now he starts reeling off the advantages of being a Jew. Who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption of sons, the glory of the covenants, the giving of the law, the temple service and the promises. Whose are the fathers and for whom is the Christ according to the flesh? Who is over all, God blessed forever. Amen. You know, and they lost it all. 70 AD, the Romans came in and wiped it all out. There hadn't been a Jewish sacrifice in 2,000 years. Y'all, that's the price of ungratitude. That's the price of losing hope. I personally believe the church will end up going through some sort of sifting process like that. So God will say, who's just coming here for the donuts and who's coming here for the ministry? Oh, we're doomed. We don't even have donuts. So I guess they're all here for the ministry. But, uh, so maybe we'll end up being okay on that. I love what Miller says here. The ministry of Moses cannot produce the desired end result. It could not reveal God's glory to the people. Instead, the result was that their minds were hardened. Despite all the positive things that we could say about Moses' ministry, it always produced this result. It always produced that result, right? From Genesis to Malachi... You just see this constant sense of lack of hope, of stubbornness, of rebellion. Well, now let's look at the, that's the bad news, all right? So here's, let's look at the effects of the new covenant, the good news in verses 16 uh, through 18. And we're going to look at five uh, aspects of the, of, the, uh, of, of the effects of the new covenant here. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now, the Lord is the spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, were being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. So one of the first effects of the new covenant we see here is salvation, right? Whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Only in Jesus is the veil taken away. You don't get it off with good works. You don't get it off with ceremony. You don't get it off with uh, sentimentality. Uh, you get it off because you're converted by Jesus. 
it's really a, it's, it's, it's a Pauline kind of experience. You may not have actual scales coming off your eyes like Paul did, but it's kind of the same way. Those of you who, those of you who got converted later in life, you know that, right? You remember those days. Like a blind man, being, they, they can see, and yet so many people who claim to be seers are actually blind. John chapter 9, the, after the healing of the man born blind, Jesus said, For judgment I came to this world, that those who do, who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Those of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and said to him, We are not blind too, are we? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say we, we see, our, your sin remains. You know, I can remember back in the days when I was at Clemson. I mean, I just didn't go to church. I hadn't gone to church in years. And just, I had, I had a respect, I think, for God and Christianity. But I just, I just, I didn't understand it. Didn't connect the dots. Never did get the substitutionary atonement thing. I don't know why. Uh, and... Not, so that's a great doctrine. I'm sorry I called it a thing. Um, you know what I mean. Uh, and yet, I, and, but then I was in, uh, in Bible study with a, a, a chaplain in our fraternity who grew up in the church. And it's funny, about the same time I got converted and the scales came uh, off my eyes, he became apostate and proved himself not to be a believer at all. He was the one, he led a Bible study. He claimed to be a seer. I, cl- I realized I was blind. Don't take it for granted. Don't be presumptive. Some of you need to get saved today. You need to cry out for mercy. It says here, now the Lord is spirit. Uh, the idea of Lord could be father or son. It's probably uh, the son, Christ, uh, in con- considering the context here. And, and here's kind of looking at parallel. So, so Moses' experience of going to the, the tent of meeting and meeting with the Lord face to face is like Paul being filled with the Spirit and preaching of the uh, Spirit. By the way, this is one of those places in your Bible you might want to put a little triangle because here's one of the wonderful teachings of the Trinity. You know, you'll have people, the Trinity is never mentioned in the Bible. Well, you just look at all those triangles over the years. Here's Trinity, right? Jesus is equal to God. Spirit's equal to God. So Jesus is equal to Spirit. So here you got the Lord is Spirit here. Now we see here the next one, a freedom comes. A freedom comes for those who are converted. When the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. There is liberty. The the veil is over. There is access to God, and we have freedom. Now, I'll be honest with you. Sometimes people are afraid to preach this because they think people are going to just take it as, as a license to sin. There's liberty. I'm saved. I can do whatever I want. Not a real believer. Not a real believer. Too many people, the, uh, the idea of freedom means freedom to do whatever they want to do, to sin without challenge. But biblical freedom is the freedom to do what God wants you to do, a power to obey that you've never experienced before. We have been blessed with the liberty to obey, not to disobey. You know, the, here's the other thing, too. One reason why you come to Jesus is your sins have worn you out. You're just tired of them. They feel good. They look good. They taste good at the moment, but they always bring about Death. They always bring about death. The reason why you come to Jesus is you want to get rid of them. You don't want to go create more. 
right? So there's a liberty that comes here. The shackles are broken off. And again, this is, and this is important because we're born legalists. Every, if, you, if you don't believe that, look at every other religion in the world. It's list of do's and don'ts and rules and regulations. I didn't want to become a Christian because I thought that's what Christianity was, a list of do's and don'ts. And, uh, and I usually didn't feel so good on Sunday morning, to be honest with you. I just didn't want anything to do with a, a list of do's and don'ts and everything. And yet there was something there that kept pulling me in because I was tired of being the way I was. And a lot of y'all have that same kind of experience. But it's interesting to see this idea. I think one of the things that really helped me helps me to realize the liberty we have as Christians. And I'm talking about Bible-believing Christians is to see the practices of other faiths that don't have that liberty. And one of the best places to see that is, interestingly enough, Jerusalem. You go to Jerusalem, you go to the Temple Mount, and you see the legalism of Islam and the legalism of the Orthodox Jews. The, the Muslims, the women are dressed head to toe in a black, they call it burqa, is that right? Black gown with only an eye slit. Now, the hypocrisy of that is, will drive a, American women crazy because the, the men all look like they're about to have a backyard barbecue. They're wearing tennis shoes and shorts and soccer shirts, and they're walking around as comfortable as me. By the way, did I mention Jerusalem? This is in summertime. It's 95, 100 degrees. But you got to keep that rule. Women are, they're all temptresses. You've got to keep them covered up. Even if it is 95 degrees, so what? They're just women. I may be being harsh, but I don't think I'm too far from the truth. Then you've got the Orthodox Jews. The men are going around in these thick black felt hats, long black uh, overcoats. And it's 95 degree. Why? Because that's what God wants. I'm honoring God by the clothes that I'm wearing. We have a uniform here, and it's, we can't deviate from that uniform. We got rules. We got standards. I got to appease God by doing this. And, it break, and I'll be honest with you, it breaks your heart. It breaks your heart. I thought... If I had a little bit more entrepreneurial spirit, I'd figure out a way to get some seersucker into that town. I mean, I'm an expert on heat. I'm from Columbia, South Carolina. Have you ever known a hotter place than Columbia, South Carolina? Seersucker's the answer. So one, one of y'all is going to go start it. David Worthen's going to go start a seersucker store in Jerusalem for all the you entrepreneurs. But, but, but you may, what you do is you leave that situation... And you think, praise God for the liberty that comes to being a Christian. We're saved by grace, not by the works of the law. We don't have a uniform. And he goes on to say, but we with an unveiled face, the we here, Paul's including himself, this is believers here that have an unveiled face. The, faith, the, the, the veil has been removed. He mentions this several times. But it was also the case, I mean, you've got to be careful when we start talking about this, the, the principle of Moses here. You've you got to be careful here. One of my concerns about uh, the view of Scripture known as dispensationalism is that they will often say there's a different plan for the Jew than there is for a Christian. That's just not a New Testament principle. That is a very foreign principle to the Apostle Paul here. And, and because one of the things, if you go to the book of Hebrews, you know what you're going to find out? The Old Testament Jew was saved the, saved the same way 
that the New Testament Christian is saved by God's grace through the agency of faith. For instance, you go to Hebrews chapter 11, and it says here, chapter starts off, verse 1, now the faith, uh, faith is the assurance of things hoped for by the, and the conviction of things not seen. For by it, men of old, men of old, who's the men of old? Well, it includes Samson, which really encourages me because that guy was a doofus. He's, a, he's in heaven right now. Do y'all know that? Uh, it, uh, Moses, Elijah, Elisha, these great heroes, they, Samuel, David, okay? These, uh, these uh, were saved, basically, they gained approval. And then he goes on and lists all these heroes. Then he closes, then he closes, Hebrews chapter 11. And all these having gained approval by their works, having gained approval by their ceremony, having gained approval by their, by their genetic code, no, all these having gained approval by their faith did not receive what was promised because God had provided something better for us so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. There was just nothing in the Old Testament that energized obedience uh, as opposed to us. Uh, one commentator went so far as to say that, that, that the Old Covenant was a jailer in a sense that locked up sinners with just this awareness of sin but without the ability uh, and the spirit within to be able to overcome it. And God still forgave, and, uh, you know, as people were looking to the coming of Messiah and looking of the, the, the perfect redemption that we get to look past. Uh, but I thought, when he said jailer, I thought of that wonderful illustration of the Philippian jailer, remember? You know, Pastor Paul, they're in there singing, you know, because that's what we would do if we were beaten and we were in chains. We would sing, you know. I hope that's what we would do. Uh, and, they're in the, and then the earthquake comes, and the jailer realizes the prisoners are, or he thinks the prisoners are gone. He's about to kill himself because that would be a better way to go than what the Romans are going to do to him. Paul says, don't kill yourself. And, and the Philippian jailer says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Isn't that interesting? He was listening to the songs, wasn't he? What must I do to be saved? What's Paul's response? Well, let's say you got to get circumcised. You got to go uh, eat only kosher food. You can't have shellfish anymore. Uh, you got to have a booth here. You got to wear these particular kinds. No, it was believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. We think there's a trick here. It's just not that easy. Well, no, it's not. It takes, it takes supernatural movement of the Lord in your heart. But from our standpoint, that really is it. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Then you see insight is one of the other things that comes to us in the old. Behold as a mirror, the glory of the Lord. And remember, mirrors back then weren't like our perfect mirrors with glass and silver and all that. They were actually polished tin. You ever, any, any hikers or Boy Scouts here? You know, it's the kind of mirror you would take. Uh, you, know, uh, you take it to look at yourself when you're brushing your teeth when you're a Boy Scout. You're hoping the reason's there so that you can signal a helicopter for the rescue because you've just killed a bear and that never happens. It's always just for brushing your teeth. But anyway, it's this polished metal. So when you've ever looked at one of these polished metal mirrors, it's kind of fuzzy, right? It's, you see actually in it dimly, right? So you see in a mirror dimly the glory of the Lord. So uh, the, the, Moses' face was, was glorious. The glory that we have as far surpasses that, yet we don't see it completely. We see it in a mirror dimly. And yet, it does give us some insight. We are beholding in the mirror the glory of the Lord. It goes back to Proverbs 9, right? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So you get to know the Lord and you start to get some insight. And he's going to talk more about this through transformation, which is actually the theme verse of our, of our whole text on the banner back here. 
But uh, go to the other word, uh, other text that talks about transformation, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. We're the one on the altar, no, no, no longer the lamb, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by what? The renewing of your mind. Don't be one of those lazy Christians that said, oh, I don't care about doctrine, just give me Jesus. You need to care about doctrine. You need to transform your mind. Read your Bible. Go to Bible studies. Read good Christian books. We really need all the help we can get because our mind is so fallen, right? But God gives us that ability. Now we see a transforming sanctification, kind of a merger onto number four there. We are being transformed into the same image. Okay, so you're looking at this image of Christ in this fuzzy mirror. You're seeing it dimly, but we're actually being transformed into that same image. And, and it's beautiful. He's speaking here of sanctification, right? A continued growth and, and holiness here. We're being transformed into that same image. Moses had the glow on his face you've got the glow in your life. People see the, see the difference. Yesterday, Rick Phillips, uh, again, he's former uh, tank commander, um, the, 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 the United States government paid him to cuss people out. And he said, you know, as a second lieutenant coming in, he's 21 years old, and he's uh, working with these grizzled sergeants who are 40 years old have been in combat and everything like that and the, and, and the basically the advice he got was to get respect you got to cuss at them you got to cuss at them well he got saved at age 31 and he said immediately the cussing stopped said it took a while for the drinking to to, to got to get a hold of the of his drinking habit but it does happen it's a transformation it takes a little bit of time and sometimes we go backwards we're, a lot of times we face with new temptations, but, but we are being transformed into that image. Now, it's interesting. Y'all like the Avenger movies? You know, Thor? Thor's, Thor's funny. That's what I like, Thor. <clears throat> if, you were to, if you were to look, or let's, I'll make it more personal. If I were to sit there and stare at a picture of Thor... Just for hours and hours and hours and hours. No matter how hard I try, I will never become Chris Hemsworth. He's like seven feet taller than me. He actually has muscles. I have a beard. His is not gray. It's just never going to happen. What could happen is the session would want to have a meeting with me as I'm sitting there staring at Chris Hemsworth for hours. But I will never become Chris Hemsworth. Here's the difference. You just keep staring at Jesus. You just keep wanting to be like him. You will become more like him. It's an amazing thing to take a bunch of misfits like us and turn us into people not only who are positionally holy, but actually act holy. And that's one of the promises here that comes through here. And then we have glory. And our final list, from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. Uh, what, what the Lord, what, what, as the Lord is sanctifying you, he will bring it to completion. It will not be completed until you die. It just won't. You might get sort of close there, but then, like I say, once you go down the sanctification road, you realize all these other stupid things you were doing you didn't even see before, right? I love that 1 Corinthians. I don't think I've ever done a funeral. I haven't mentioned this, uh, this text. 1 Corinthians 15, when he took, Paul told the Corinthians earlier, just as we have borne the image of the earthly... So we will bear the image of the heavenly. Behold, I tell you a mystery. 
We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will raise imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. Folks, don't lose hope. It's coming. It's coming. It's right around the corner. As C.S. Lewis says, it's right on the other side of the door. We're on the wrong side of the door, and we know it. But every day, every year, we get closer to that door. It's coming. Our glory is at hand. So I, I want to just go back. You know, we just finished the book of Mark and think about the Gospels and the Mount of Transfiguration, right? It was almost sort of a, a Mount Sinai kind of experience. And uh, you remember what happened? I'm picking up here with Matthew 17. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was, that is, Jesus was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun. His garments became white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them talking with him. Notice this. I'm going to make an argument on silence, but I think it's a pretty good one. Only Jesus was the one who shone. He was the one that shone. Moses didn't shine. Elijah didn't shine. Guess who else didn't shine? Peter, James, or John. They didn't shine. When Peter, James, and John came down off the mountain, they just had experience like Moses did. They came down off the mountain. They didn't have to put a veil over their face because the other apostles were scared. They were not shining. Why? Because God has so much better, some, something so much better than that for you. He's inside. He's inside. That same spirit, that glow that was on Moses is in every one of the believers, even the least of us. Now, with that hope, how can we not speak boldly? Father, I pray that you would help us to accept these truths and we pray, God, that we would realize these truths in our lives, God. We just get so overwhelmed by discouragement and so overwhelmed by the, uh, the dogs of this world nipping at our heels, God. We just don't t- take time to praise you for the holiness that is ours and for living under the truth of the new covenant. Bless us with this, Lord. And even as we participate in the Lord's Supper, help us to take it uh, to, to heart the blessings that we have in Christ Jesus. In Christ's name, amen.